This sermon, Turning the World Right Side Up, was preached by Tom Wilkins on Sunday, August 21st, 2022 at Sovereign Grace Church. If you would turn to Acts chapter 17 and then stand with me, please. Acts chapter 17, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 15. This is the Lord's word. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis, thank you, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. When Paul went in, as was his custom, and on on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer And to raise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. Taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob to set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that, There is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. And when the Jews of Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent off Paul on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. The Lord's word. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would superintend the preaching of your word. Let the word of God ring loud and clear in our soul. Let the message of Jesus save 
all those present that have not believed, move now in power to save, be merciful, reveal Jesus, the Christ, to those in this room that so desperately need it. For those of us that have believed that Jesus is the Christ, encourage and strengthen and change us. Together, we're so desperate for you. Holy Spirit, exalt Christ. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you would look briefly at Acts 17, verses 1 and 2. One one more time with me. And in particular, verse 2. There in Thessalonica, Paul went in, and these words we hear, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So for several weeks, three weeks in particular. And as the opening this morning, I wanted to first draw our attention to the, this pattern, the custom of the Apostle Paul. This is not part of our outline yet. This is the way I want to introduce this. The verse seems clear here that his custom was to first go into the synagogue, but his ultimate overriding custom wasn't simply the place. He loved his Savior, Jesus, and he so desired to faithfully deliver the message of Jesus to a people that he so loved as well, both the Jews, his people, and the Gentiles whom God had called him. Kent Hughes writes this, Paul's life was one of ongoing bravery and determination. The list of Paul's sufferings in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is mind-boggling. If anyone questioned the Apostle Paul's sincerity, he could point to the scar tissue on his face and his back. He was willing to suffer for Christ and for others because he loved them. Regarding his people, Kent Hughes writes on, regarding his people, the Jews, he said, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, out of Romans chapter 9. To some of his converts, he wrote, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. He loved deeply. I don't know what your picture was of Paul. Sometimes when we read of Paul, we just picture him as this hunker over old guy who's grouchy and he'll argue you to death. Paul loved the people of God deeply. Deeply. He loves you and I, if I could say it that way. You know why? He had been changed to be like the Savior. Jesus Christ loves his church. He loves his people. And regarding our text today, not long after their departure, Paul will write to the Thessalonians again. Paul, after this occurrence, about a month to two later, he writes the first Thessalonians to them. So I would encourage you this week, go and study first and second Thessalonians, particularly first Thessalonians after this, because you'll realize Paul's heart for them. It gets communicated after this event, shortly after his departure. 
It's right on the heels of his departure from the city. And in 1 Thessalonians 2, in particular, verses 7 and 8, we hear Paul write this, but we, his love for them, hear this, hear the apostle's description of his affection for this church, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. I just felt like it would be good to consider Paul and what a brave guy he was. He may have been hunkered over by the beatings that he loved deeply. But there was one thing even over this, one thing that was his custom. Jesus and him crucified and raised. This was the custom of Paul, preaching Jesus. He preached about the one who loved him first to the ones that he so dearly loved. And it's no different here in our text. I've summarized our text this morning with this larger idea, this this statement. The plain truth that Jesus is the Christ is turning this world right side up. The plain truth that Jesus is the Christ is turning this world right side up. And we'll unpack, and you'll see in the text that this is certainly the case. The plain truth, and what I'm hoping to communicate by that phrase, is the straight on, the driven home clarity of Paul's message to the Thessalonians and later to the Bereans. The gospel is clear in what we hear. And it's about Jesus. And it's about Jesus being the Christ. And using the words and actually turning it around of those that have now begun to rush in and persecute the church. These men are turning the world upside down. Actually what we know biblically is true from the garden on until right now. The world has been turned upside down. The gospel turns the world right side up. Let's look at my first point. The plain truth is proclaimed plainly in Maine. I'm kidding. That just popped in my head right now. That's that disturbing world in my brain. I'm using a very simple word, plain, because it is drawing on the simplicity of the gospel. The plain truth is proclaimed plainly. Now let's look at verses 1 through 9. And in particular, zero in on three. We've looked at a little bit one and two already, but here the words in zero three, I mean in uh, verse three, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. This is straightforward truth. It is necessary. It's necessary that Christ would suffer and rise from the dead. So here the plain truth is simply stated. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer, in the implication of the text, and die. Old Testament verses that Paul likely would have turned to because what we know from what it says right before is he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He did not have 
his New Testament laying there before him. So he's not reasoning with those. He's reasoning with the Old Testament that he knew well. And we know from the text that the Jews, and in particular from what the scholars are understanding, it's not just the Jews' nation. In this case, it's the Jewish religious leaders. So remember that because this is going to be referred to several times in the text. The Jews, the Jews, the Jews. It's the religious leaders of the time. And so he, there he is in their world, in their synagogue, reasoning with them from the Scriptures. Old Testament verses that he would have employed by Paul likely would have been like Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53, 8 through 9, Paul could have read, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken by the transgression of his people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Prophecy after prophecy, Jesus, well, that Christ would have to suffer and die. He would go to Psalms 22. You can write these down. I'm going to give it to you in a machine gun blast. Verses 1, 7, 8, 16, 17, and 18. I'll say it again. Verses 1, 7, 8, 16, 17, and 18. And listen to verse 1. It'll be familiar. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He would have taken them there for sure, wouldn't he have? Verses 16 through 18. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Surely he took them there. He would have talked about Jesus being the Lamb of God. Isaiah 53, 6 through 7. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord had laid on him, the Christ, had laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you're new to what that meant in the Old Testament, that meant daily, as we hear out of Hebrews, the priest would have stood in the courts a lamb would have been brought as a sacrificial lamb. The guilt offering would have been brought into the presence. And in a symbolic effort, the man, the household leader, would take his hands and lay them on the precious head of this lamb as if to lay his sins and the sins of his family on that lamb and would pull the lamb's chin up and slice the lamb's throat and shed the lamb's blood for the family's sins. Surely, Paul read and the Lord laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But also he talked about the Lamb of God being our substitution. I'm sure Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, we shall see and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, and he bore the sin of many. The lamb that took our place. Well, now we know why the, John the Baptist declares in John 1.29, behold the lamb of God. He sees Jesus coming off in the distance and says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was necessary for Christ to suffer, Paul is telling them. Yet it was also necessary that Christ would rise from the dead. Again, Psalm 16.10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, it will write, or let your Holy One see corruption. Prophecy about him not remaining and decaying in the grave. Isaiah 53, again, verse 11, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Therefore, I'll divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. Christ is alive and well and is satisfied. Psalm 110.1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So Hebrews 10 will explain this. But when Christ had suffered for all for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool. He plainly preached the good news, plainly. The plain truth is also reasoned. Now there's a transition. We're going to look at this in verse 2. We're going to go to verse 3. There may even be a reverse back here. But 2, it says he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And here, that word reasoned is Paul is going to the Old Testament, and he's doing this. He's dialoguing. That word is a root word out of Greek for where we get the word dialogue. It was an exchange of Q and A. It was a speak and listen and speak and listen some more reasoning with them. It's going on for days, day after day after day after day. Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. The plain truth is also explained and proved. That word explained is literally being opening or opening up what it means. Luke's usage is describing, it's the same word Luke uses to describe the opening of the womb in Luke 2.23. And Jesus opening the eyes of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, that word open, he explained it to them. Paul's uh, explaining is also simple in its clarity. Now this is where we get that word, the perspicuity of the scriptures. The gospel is simple, meaning it's understandable. It's not dumb or dumbed down. It means that you and I can understand it. Now look, the best education I got early on was a degree, was, it's not even called a degree when you graduate high school, diploma. Like C.J. Mahaney said years ago, and even that ought to be investigated. <laughs> the gospel is clear. It's simple. The educated, the uneducated, when they hear it, they'll get it. They'll get what they need from it. 
So he dialogued with them, but he did so in such clarity. But he also is not only just opening it to them, but he's opening it by proving. He's giving evidence. He's coming alongside them using that word prove means to give evidence, place beside or before. Paul comes alongside his hearers and he leads them to the truth. He's not passive, passively just lobbing truths out there like, well, this is what it says, good luck. He come alongside with them and proves this to them. Imagine a dad trying to teach his son something. And he employs several means of getting it to them. One of those means that's in this text is the dad comes along the son and spends time with him, labors with him, teaches him, instructs him, opens it up to him, and he won't give up. He keeps doing it. It's not just firing off a command down the hallway, which I've done. That doesn't work. Oh, I'll get immediate attention, but no lasting fruit. No, this dad, the Lord, comes alongside. Paul places that alongside and proves them the truth. They were blind, and they needed to see. They were deaf. They needed to hear. So he took them by the hand, and he spoke to them. He was taking them somewhere. Paul drops the bombshell, the center of the center, if you want to call it this. The plain truth in the Greek are these words. This, Jesus. This, Jesus. Now, in your ESV translation, you'll see that in verse 3. And saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. The original Greek describes it this way. This one is the Christ, Jesus. Do you feel the hopeful trajectory of the original language? This one, the Christ, Jesus. This Jesus, I think the ESV gets it for our vernacular. So for weeks, Paul reasoned and dialogued with them about the scriptures. But here's what he was driving home. The Christ and the necessity of his suffering and his rising. This Christ is Jesus of Nazareth. And for weeks, they talked about Jesus. They mulled over Jesus and considered Jesus. Verse 4, now we see the power of the result of the gospel resulting in many being persuaded. I love the wording. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Luke in particular loves pointing out when women are included in the statement because they're so disregarded in this culture. Luke's like, it's not just some of the women. It's many of the women. In fact, the commentators describe it this way. It goes on to say, it did save many. It saved many of the Jews. It saved many of the Greeks. And many of the women who were married to these men. He doesn't leave the wives hanging off in the dust somewhere. And this is a single guy, by the way. It would be easy for him to disregard that. Yep, he's saved. This is how he's saved. But, talking about Paul. But he, but he, I'm sorry, I just confused Paul and Luke and I didn't mean to do that. I shouldn't have done that. 
The point is, many believe. And here is how they believed. Verse 4, they were persuaded. They were persuaded. That one word there in verse 4, they were persuaded. The plain truth persuades, and many are persuaded. And yet the gospel we know in the very next text, not only does it persuade, it provokes. The Jewish leaders immediately are provoked. Verses 5 through 9, we're going to look at a little bit later in the, in, the, in the message. But the summary statement is they're provoked. And the scene is not good. Evil breaks loose. The Jewish leaders gather wicked men of the rabble who form a mob and a familiar scene ensues. The mob's cry is this. These men are turning the world upside down. And the truth of the matter is more grave than this evil mob can imagine. The gospel of Jesus is flipping this world. This Jesus is now turning the whole world right side up. And they need to believe him or they'll be left wrong side down. Plain truth that Jesus is the Christ. It does turn the world right side up, and this mob doesn't get it. If they refuse Jesus as the Christ, please, if you have not believed in Christ, hear what I'm saying. If they, this mob, or you refuse Christ, your whole world will crush you, and it will crush them. It's worse than they can imagine, but the joy is just Jesus promises to save The world is already upside down due to sin and rebellion towards God. But Jesus makes a way for them to be saved as he crushes the evil and redeems this place, turning this world right side up. You might be here today. Is your whole world seemingly upside down? Or do you realize that it already has been upside down. You need to hear that Christ has come to save and to save you and to take your world and completely turn you right side up. You know, the catchphrase, right side up and upside down, if I confuse them, that's fine. But don't confuse this part. You need a Savior if you've not believed in Christ. He will save you if you believe in him. Are you caught in this upside-down world? Believe in Christ, and you will find that you are now caught in his redemptive work in flipping this world right side up. But sadly, at least we know in the text, the mob is not going to have this. They will only ramp up their surge. So in Paul's departure from Thessalonica, the church is now left. They're left bearing the name of Jesus. And we're going to see that they are going to bear the reproach of the cross and that they'll do so in hope and joy, becoming an example to everyone, everywhere. Study First Thessalonians. So we've looked at the plain truth proclaimed plainly, that gospel simplicity. Now we're going to consider in point two, the plain truth is received. And another phrase that I'll use is the shouldering of the gospel, Gospel shouldering, this phrase that I'm going to use, you'll see why, but the plain truth is received. Now in verse 10, look there with me. 
The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, explaining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Luke's opening words in his gospel, which is actually part one of Acts, his gospel, Luke, he says, my dear Theophilus, I write these things so that you'll be sure of what you've been taught, that you will know what you've been taught. And here we hear a similar phrase in that they studied these things to know if they were so. The very next statement, many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. A very similar description is described of Berea. They too heard the same thing by implication of the text. Paul, when he arrived in Berea, did the same thing. He went to them and delivered the same message. He has the same song he's going to sing in town after town after town, in letter after letter after letter to the churches, to you and I even today. He has the same song. It is necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and this Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Christ, is what he taught them. And their response, the Jewish leader's response in Berea is very different than Thessalonica. In comparison, the religious leaders immediately employ wicked men over in Thessalonica um, to round up a mob in rejection of the word of God. But here in Berea, they receive the word with all eagerness. Let's consider the words that are being used in this phrase, I mean, this text as well, in all eagerness. There in, in verse 11. All eagerness, examining the scriptures. Receiving that word in eagerness. That word eagerness from the original text is rushing forward, followed by the word examine, which means to carefully consider. That word examine. So it's this rushing forward to carefully consider. They're all in to slow down. They're all ready to run in to slow down and consider this. And look at every jot and tittle. What does the word say? What does the word say? What does the word say? And to consider and to search out the truth claims in Paul's message of the cross. For the believer and the non-believer this morning, an eager and careful consideration of the gospel according to the scriptures is paramount because our eternity depends on it and countless other distortions are constantly on the move. It's paramount for us, for believers and non-believers to slow down, rush in, slow down, and consider the message of Jesus. Our very life, our very eternity depends on it. And we're also filled with other stories. It doesn't take long for us to get away and to get away from the word where we begin to wonder, is it true? Is it, is it real? It doesn't take long for us to begin to wonder. So let's look again at the text that you and I would with all eagerness examine the scriptures daily to see if these things are soul. Sometimes the soul that has been taken down and wondering, Lord, are you good? Rush in and slow down and read. Read and study. Is it so? You'll discover it is. 
Has Christ really come to save me? Does he have the power to really forgive me? He does. You'll find out. Go in and examine it. Go in and examine it. And then you will be joined with this many people and not a few Greek women of high standing and men as well. Is that not us? But now let's look at verse 6. And then we're going to look back in Thessalonica. Well, actually, in verse 6, we are back in Thessalonica. What I want us to consider here is shouldering the reproach of the cross. Calvin writes these words regarding this text, that they under, had to undertake the reproach of the cross. It is here that we see what it is for or what it is in its clear, revealed state. They hate Jesus and his followers, and their attack will be on Christians as well. And we see this as the burden of the reproach of Jesus the bear, that they'll have to bear the reproach of the cross happens right away. Verse 6, Jason, who apparently housed Paul and Silas, is dragged along with other Christian brothers before city authorities and charged and mercifully, uh, mercifully allowed to post bond and then is let out. Listen how Paul encourages the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 8. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word. We just read that. They received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only was the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Listen to how Paul makes this statement so that we need not to say anything. Paul doesn't even have to come in later and say, hey, let me tell you about the Thessalonians. The word of what's happened in Thessalonica has been spreading like wildfire within the first month of that church being formed. And within that first month of the church coming under persecution and having to shoulder the gospel and their suffering, we find out in a month's time, they're suffering greatly. They're suffering in joy. And the word is encouraging the whole region. Paul using that word in hyperbole, but not so much everywhere. Here's why I say not so much. You and I are being encouraged by the Thessalonians being so deeply moved and changed by the gospel that it's now affecting you and I this morning. Now in verse 13, the Bereans now also bear the reproach of the cross. The pattern continues. The Thessalonians will bear the reproach of the cross. Now verse 13. And they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. The mobs are going to follow us. The Bereans are one of the first ones to get it. You know what's being experienced here? I think it's right for us to consider this and bring this down to our world for a minute. This may feel a little bit strange that some religious leaders out of Thessalonica would band together. They would hire what translations they describe these guys as evildoers and members of the rabble, you know, men of the rabble. It's a weird description. There's one modern-day translator. I believe his last name is Peterson. He says, these guys were bums. <laughs> the simplicity of the text is clear. This is a bad crowd that they employed to go after them. Well, this is not so unlike 
social media today as trolls jump in, keeping those involved in the communication from following those. They're hounding people uh, regarding these things, looking for every attempt to attack and to dissuade those that are already being persuaded. Privately right now, I have a number of young men and young ladies in my mind that I've known over the years. They're now nearing the age around 30. And a number of them have been affected by the rabble. They seemingly were with us. They seemingly loved the things of the Lord. Something got hold of them. I know a few of them very well. And I think this is what got hold of them. Because we're going to discover, and it's right for you and I to consider a necessary, maybe even a side in the message, is the effect of the mob. You know, in this upside-down, broken world where the mob exists still, it wields power. And it wields power not only over our thinking, it wields power over our motivation and will at times. We have to be careful and resist joining the mob. The text reveals that even the leaders and authorities can get caught up in the mob. Rewind the news over the last couple of years, just in our country alone, how the mob have been able to take things that were organized and were lawful and have flipped them over on their heads and they're disorganized, they're disrupted, and are willing to make decisions that are against the own laws of our land. They'll win over through fear and confusion. They're empowered by their father, the devil. They'll have their own hate, their own disregard, their lack of restraint. They'll overlook existing laws. They'll foam anarchy and lawlessness, even giving support to it. Don't join the mob. Be aware of the mob's effect on you and I. I don't, I don't care how mature you are. Be watchful of the effect of the mob. In no time we'll find ourselves standing in the midst, raising our fists, saying the things the mob is saying, believing things about people we would have never believed before, passing on things that we have said that people have that have been said about people that we would have never imagined passing on and we added it copied it and hit send don't join the rabble the Bereans the Thessalonians have to shoulder the cross they have to bear the reproach of Christ this is where the hopefulness for us in this statement comes to bear. We too will bear this reproach. It's coming. If you haven't already experienced it, it's coming. If you believe the simple and plain truth that Jesus is the Christ, they're coming for you. That rabble is coming for you. We will bear the reproach of the cross, but let it be an encouragement that that kind of affliction is coming. It means that we have believed the truth. Our faith-filled receiving of the word of Jesus brings with it suffering and the reproach 
and much affliction, but it brings with us a validation and a truth. We belong to Christ. That's why we're under attack. So now let's take these two points and consider what that's going to look like in our lives in application. So for application, if we're going to see how the plain truth that Jesus is the Christ continues to turn the world upside down, expect that your whole world will be turned, I'm sorry, turn the whole world right side up. Expect that your whole world also will be turned right side up as Jesus continues to work in the turning of our lives right side up. First thing to consider is anchor yourself in the truth of the gospel, Revisit the gospel again and again and again. You and I are prone to forget Jesus is the Christ. Anchor yourself in that truth. Undertake the reproach of the cross. Bear it, not in pride, meaning don't give it up. Continue to bear it. The joy is that we don't bear it without the power of the Spirit At times, we're willing to cash it in. He's there to help us bear the cross. Shoulder the reproach of the cross as a believer. This is a charge for us. Shoulder the reproach of the cross, Christian. Prepare to bear the suffering for Christ's sake. Be aware that it's coming, so prepare to bear under its weight. When we're with family, the difficult conversations and strained relationships begin because we believe the plain truth, our son or daughter may turn on us. Our spouse may turn on us. That extended family turn on us. Be prepared, but also be hopeful. The government, we do worship and follow another king. It's gonna become clear and more clear over the decades, and we will be hated because we follow King Jesus. Holiness and morality. We are all called to holiness and purity. And purity in God, through his word, defines our relationship, defines our sexuality. We use words like man and woman because the Lord's word uses it, not because we're gonna win the argument of the day. We have to be so convinced of the truth and the simplicity of God's word, but also that we would be aware that it calls us to holiness and morality that is, well, it's God's call to us. How about money and possessions? And no, I'm not gonna say anything about giving. The reformer Luther begins to teach in the Reformation that believers begin to prepare to have everything taken away from them. I would have expected a different way to apply this to money and possessions. Bearing the cross of Christ means we may bear the loss of all things. But you know who can be our greatest cheerleader? Paul, who said he counted all things loss for the sake of Christ. Rick, you can bring the band up. Has your faith been muddled in the confusion of the world's mob? Be persuaded again 
by the simplicity of the gospel. Believe again. Return to the truths that you know are true again. Jesus is the Savior. He has come for you and I. Blow off the dust of good books that point back to the plain truth. This has been a joy of mine as of late. When I transitioned from full-time pastor, I realized I was not reading as much as I used to. And I realized there was a bunch of books that was starting to collect dust. Well, when we arrived here, I got to unbox those books and start putting them on my shelf again over in my office. And it wasn't like, good, I'm finally full-time and I can read and drink coffee and, and the rest of you are like, great, that's thanks, that's just wonderful time, I'll, I'll go back to my job. No, what I realized is I didn't have to turn away from the books. It was good for me to dust off some books. Go back to Christianity 101. The simple things of what it means to be a believer. And you are going to discover is milk for babes. And maybe that's why your soul is parched. But you know what? Those fundamental truths, they're meat for the mature believer as well. So we'll find milk and we'll find solid food. So go back. Sometimes a song speaks the plain truth. When we are finally in heaven and we see the face of the Lamb of God, Jesus, we'll all fall and worship him, won't we? Sovereign Grace wrote this song, When We See Your Face. And in the first verse, we're going to hear these words. Though the dark is overwhelming and the brightest lights grow dim, Though the word of God is trampled on by foolish men, though the wicked never stumble and abound in every place, we will all be humbled when we see your face. If you'd stand with me. All of the suffering for the believer is going to be wiped away in heaven one day. All physical suffering, all anguish of the mind, all tormented souls are going to be finally at rest. When a very familiar face appears on the scene, Jesus makes an amazing statement. Blessed are those that have not seen me, but believe. Oh, I'll bet he's been etching contours of his face and our soul. It's not going to be a stranger when we walk into heaven. I don't know what area of heaven I get to walk into if we get to do that. But he'll be there. And we'll see him 